I often find my my prayers are focused on on God as Father, and um, I know that in in our culture these days that that is a difficult concept for us to grab. For some of us, for others, it's um, not such a hard one. Um, but uh, if you've heard how we kind of continue to beat the drum here at Faith, how important uh, the role of of good fathering is in the home in society, and how desperately it's needed. It just seems as though my radar is kind of up on that whenever we're watching something, either it's a show or a movie or some kind of documentary or something like that. The the, the weak father figures or the things where I think kids are kind of wayward or something like that just stand out to me. And um, and, and so I, I continue to pray for the church to get uh, the same burden. I don't mean just faith. I think we have some great dads here at faith, but but the church that that Jesus Christ is head of, all across the the globe, that fathers would become um, much more available, I guess, to uh, to follow the Lord and to be faithful to Him and to see what would change uh, if, with the people around us. And so, I love being reminded in the scriptures of what a great dad God is. For one, because like you, I need a great dad. You know, it's not uh, that much of a mystery that when we have a great dad, um, we feel a little bit more protected. We feel like someone's got the future figured out and we just got some guidance available and that kind of thing. And so when I see a verse of scripture that says that God is a good father, I'm encouraged by that. I'm reminded of that. I need that. I also like seeing passages of scripture that talk about how good of a dad God is because it gives me um, some comfort raising children that um, when I mess up and I do, that they have a perfect dad they can lean on. They have this kind of poor imitation that tries sometimes and sometimes is too lazy to be bothered and all that kind of stuff. But beyond me, they have a perfect father. And rather than that just letting me off the hook, what it does is it motivates me to make sure I'm trying to imitate him as, as best as possible. And so and my kids have a perfect father. So I just, when I see passages of scripture like that, I isolate them. I kind of ruminate on them a little bit so that the Lord as father becomes a clearer concept to me. Well, in our passage that we're going to be coming into in James chapter 1. We started this book about a month and a half ago, I think. Um, and as we're getting started, there's a, a passage in there. There's a verse, I should say, in, in the passage we're going to read that talks about how good a dad God is. And I've known this verse in isolation. It's one I'd be able to quote somewhat, um, you know, get it close as we were just talking about amongst the staff. Pastor Bill had brought up the idea of where do we go to dig our roots deep in the Lord and uh, was challenging us to consider script, more scripture memorization as a thing that would that would encourage that and stuff. And it, it was just kind of sticking with me for the rest of the week, because that's an area where, as we were all kind of confessing in our time together as a staff, that we know how to finish a lot of the verses, but we don't know the addresses. And so if I know most of it, I can look it up and find it and everything. And so when I hear a verse that stands out to me, um, I think of it in its isolated um, version, and sometimes I'm surprised by the context that it fits in. And this is one of those passages. When I came to verse 17 of chapter 1 in my study, I saw every good thing given and every perfect gift is from God coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And like I said, this is a verse I've known. I've counted on it. I've relied on it. 
I'm reminded also that Jesus, and he, as he was trying to encourage those that were listening, that the Holy Spirit is coming. This is a promise I can give you. He was basically putting all of that promise on the faithfulness of his dad. And he says in Luke 11, he says, Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he'll not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then being evil, which is kind of ouchy, thanks for that. Uh, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The bigger point that I'm trying to make isn't that this message is going to be about fatherhood per se. But that all of scripture is given to us to reveal who God is. It reveals who he is in his nature. It reveals who it is, he is in his character. It reveals who he is in his conduct or the actions he takes towards his people or towards his enemies. And so scripture, this revelation is given to us to point out to us, to make clear to us who God really is. The end point of that revelation is not to make us feel better about him or to make us feel better even about us, but rather to cause us to respond to who he is, who he is in his character, in his nature, in his conduct, in ways that will move his plan forward. And we'll get into this in just a little bit about the real point of us knowing the revelation of who God is. But once we settle in our hearts that God is for God, and loves us because he is love, the sooner we'll jump on board with his calling in our lives. So as I said, we got started in the book of James. This is a letter from Jesus' half-brother, um, who is a now trusted leader in the church. And um, he is jumping right to the point in his letter. James doesn't really mess around. He's got a very religious, very strict kind of background and upbringing. And once that got flipped uh, for Jesus, he was um, uh, locked in. And his intensity, if you will, uh, reminds me a lot of when you read the Apostle Paul, as Paul is very deliberate in everything he says and very articulate, but he breaks down point by point and things. And this is what I see often in James. James' theme that he's uh, dead set on is seeing that the church of Jesus Christ grows up. He wants the church to become this mature vessel of God's work so that it's able to withstand all the things that are coming over and over and over again. He uses the words trials or testings. In this particular section of the passage, he's going to talk about temptations more specifically. And so James wants us to grow up. He wants to step on the gas pedal so that we get this concept and we don't get hung up on it. We move quickly into, okay, I'm willing to do that. What's next? Our, our theme verse for this section of the letter we found from verse 4 of the first chapter. And James says, And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And we tried to explain a little bit that that word perfect could also be translated mature. 
And that's why it's helpful to have that, that kind of uh, uh, assisting word there, complete, so that you're lacking in nothing. Not that James expected you to never make a mistake, but that you would be mature, that you would be grown up in your position of, my life belongs to the Lord, I'm not being in, entangled with the things that I want or feel or tripping up over myself as I usually do and that kind of thing, that I'm moving on because like Hebrews tells us, I'm willing to grow up because I am ready to eat the strong meat of the word and not just be nursed on the milk the whole time. And so James is trying to, as I said, move us into that acceptance and, and, and push us forward. We saw as we were going through this that endurance is what per, uh, um, produces maturity. And so endurance is, you know, it sounds great. It, it sounds like, oh man, that person really has a lot of endurance. But there's such a huge negative aspect of endurance because it's, it's, there's friction involved. You have to fight against something in order to produce endurance. Endurance produces maturity. So where does endurance come from? Endurance comes from our trials or our testings. And James is making this clear in this first chapter. So if we're backing this up, maturity from endurance, endurance from trials, where do the trials come from? Anybody remember to put your left blinker on as you're heading out of the parking lot for the last six or so weeks? Three of you. All right. The rest of you are offending lots and lots of people coming out of the Shaw's parking lot. I'm just warning you. Uh, we talked about this difference between external testings at external trials. These are the things the scripture tells us that we have three enemies, the world, the flesh, which is us and the devil. These are our external enemies, the flesh, not quite so external since it walks around with us wherever we go. But that are those, those inward desires that have, that have uh, wanted to be bent towards sin. We'll explain this in a minute. And so we have external forces at play that test us, that try us, that are battling against us. Even God allows these things to come into our life to test us and to try us from outside of us in order to produce that endurance, which then leads to maturity. But we also warn, and this is where we came up with our blinker illustration and stuff, we also warn that we have a tendency to create drama. That's just who we are as people. Some worse than others. Some people live for the drama, the, the, the latest crisis that my sister's going through, or this guy over here, or my coworker, or my boss, or whatever. It kind of, for some strange reason, even though it, it looks like stress on the outside, it's like a warm little blanket that people wear, and they just love finding this kind of trouble. They love sticking their nose in it. They love acting like, oh, my life is so tough and everything. And so there's this desire for many to create their own drama. And then there's some of us that uh, try to avoid it but can't seem to. We see that as a mud puddle and we're like, I don't want to walk through that. And then we just kind of lose our balance and we go tripping through it and get mud all over ourselves. And we do this repeatedly. But the bottom line is as people, as humans, as less than perfect ones, we create our own drama thus complicating our lives because of the testings that are coming from outside, the way we respond to those things, we start to pile on ourselves. And so these are trials that are unnecessary. These are testings that are, are unwarranted, uh, if you will, and, but they are a part of our existence. But these things are given to us and we give some of these things to ourselves in order to grow us up based on how we respond to these things. 
You didn't hear me say that your own sin or your uh, uh, capacity to fall into mud puddles randomly is the only reason why you're under testing, right? We started off by some of these things come from outside of us. And they're not asked for, they're not welcome, they're not warranted, but still the Lord gave us an ability to respond in a way that doesn't add to the problem. We'll never say that the Christian life is easy, but I believe, as Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, which is that workload, because my burden is easy, my workload is light. I believe that the Christian life is easier than anything else. Why? Because the Christians have a resource that doesn't make them pile on themselves, making the, the normal problems that people go through even worse because they haven't learned how to respond to them. And so this is a, a little bit of what James is preparing his, his reader for. These, these Christians that are scattered all, of, all about and they're starting to feel the heat being turned up on them, the pressure starting to mount. And he is going to say, look, I'm going to just warn you now that you're going to need to grow up. You're, need, you're going to need to, to produce some maturity and get ready for what's coming or else it's, it's going to make you fail and you're going to be upset with yourself and there's other things that will come as a result of that. And that's what we're going to get into. Let me make a couple of simple statements that are very basic. They're not the, the deepest uh, observations of this passage or anything, but I think it might set the table for what we want to spend most of our time in. We're going to begin in verse 12 of James chapter 1. Hopefully you've been bringing your, your Bibles with you. Um, we like to remind you that typically we teach out of the New American Standard Bible. If you're wondering, if you haven't purchased your own Bible and you're wondering which one to get, I love, uh, as Pastor Bill's been saying for years, the Bible to get is the one that you'll read. So I think that that's helpful advice. But if you're looking for, well, which one do you, will you guys use every Sunday? Mostly we're going to be using the New American Standard Bible, and there's other uh, great translations or um, you know, versions that are available that are, are more readable, if you will, for your daily reading. Let's begin in verse 12. Simple statement here. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. Let's just stop there for a second. A couple of weighty words thrown at us here. Persevering, again, like we said, is, is involving this pushing against something that is friction. It's, it's moving against the wind. And so the, the basic statement that I would make here as we get started is just winning isn't easy. You can win some things. You know, if you're out playing basketball, you know, with your five-year-old and you're six feet tall and the rim's only seven feet high and stuff, then, you, you know, you probably win pretty easily. And if you feel great about that, then there's something a little disconnected with you. Um, that's the kind of win that doesn't, it's not really satisfying. For the most part, parents have a tendency, I'm sorry if there's any five-year-olds in here, but for the most part, parents tend to like it to be a good game, give the kid a chance to maybe win, um, but a good parent will not let your kids win. Just saying. No, just kidding. But uh, maybe you, maybe you, you know, go through that game. It's not a real satisfying victory, but a satisfying victory is one that comes um, against uh, some, some opposition, and there's some friction involved. Like I said, a very basic statement, but here's, here's what I want to challenge you with. We don't often resign ourselves to a battle. We have come into so often the Christian life thinking, I just want the Lord to knock down the trees for me. I just want the Lord to clear my path. I want to memorize those scriptures that make it sound like if I just pray every morning or I just read a little bit of scripture or something that my day is going to be easy and I misinterpret that kind of um, instruction from God's word. Why? Because we haven't 
surrendered, if you will, to the fact that if God's going to do something in my life that produces a satisfaction knowing I'm walking in his light, then it's probably going to be an earned victory. It's probably not going to be the feeling of being six feet tall and winning against a five-year-old at the game of basketball. Also, I want to challenge you in the second half of, of verse 12, where he says, for once he has been approved, that is, been proven to be victorious, once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. I want to just focus on this phrase, crown of life. We're not going to break it down a whole lot, but, but basically, if you think about the fact that God has given us something that has far more value than the thing we typically settle for, now you're starting to understand what the crown of life means. I believe it was C.S. Lewis that said something about, I'm going to mess this up because I didn't prepare to share this, but I, I remember it being something along the lines of um, God's children are settling for mud, pl- mud pies in the slum when he has a feast set aside for him. Because we so seldom think about the fact that God has something prepared for us. He has a reward to give us that is actually going to meet us in our heart of hearts. I I believe it's Malachi that says that he has planted eternity into the heart of man. And so everybody is without excuse that the eternal exists. And when God grants us the crown of life, he's starting to reward us in a way that means something instead of the superficial rewards even that we ask him for. Let me see if I can get us a little closer to this concept. Think about the person whose approval matters the most to you in life. That person may already have passed. That person may still be alive. Think about what it would mean to you to have that person come and say, I have a check here for a lot of money, but instead of giving, I'm just not sure I should give this to you. I, I, I think what I really would rather tell you is how proud I am of you and how uh, important you were to my life or I couldn't do this without you or something like that. And so I, I just want to know, do you want the check or do you want me to continue kind of acting like that? I think most of us, for the person that matters most to us, would say, I don't care about your money I don't care about whatever external reward or something like that. What I wanted to know is what kind of connection we have or what I meant to you in life or what you think of me. And then that kind of fuels us for other things. And then, and then if there's a way I can get the check anyway, that'd be great. Um, but the reality is, is that we, when we hear things like that, when we have that kind of intimacy or connection with somebody, there's something inside of us, and I believe that's the eternity that God's planted in our hearts, that recognizes what really means something. And all this other stuff really is fleeting, and and we can recognize that. And so this understanding that winning something that the Lord is pleased with is going to require some work, but also understanding that the reward that comes from that is really something that we don't often take the time to imagine or entertain. Maybe the Lord's got something deeper for me in terms of his approval or reward in all of this. So... What's the deal here? We talked about this uh, uh, God being Father. We talked about putting things in context. And, and uh, so as we go forward, hopefully you understand a little bit what, what tripped me up a little bit. Remember, keep in mind, um, God is Father, Father of lights. There's no variation. There's no shadow. There's no turning in him and stuff. And all of that's great. So why does James say something like this? Let's read together in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted... I'm being tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. I'm going to remind you of verse 17. It says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. When we start to fail at something, when we realize the victory is going to be too hard won and that sort of thing, or I'm going to settle for the quick reward instead of the one that means something, when we start to fail, we feel our grip slipping, what we automatically do, and I know I'm presuming a lot when I say we, but I'm just going to assume that you're people too. When we start to fail, we lose our grip. The first thing that we start doing is start building a blame list. Whose fault is it that I'm going through this right now? Man, all I want to do is hang on and I'm losing my grip. Who failed me that is causing me to slip up? And what James is trying to introduce here in the concept, because he's saying it's time to grow up. You've got trouble coming your way. Keep in mind that your heavenly father is a perfect dad. So take him off your blame list is what he's saying. So verse 13 says, let no one say when he's being tempted. I'm being tempted by God. So the first thing James wants to do is don't even go there. Because when the heat comes, uh, turns up and you're starting to feel your knees knock and you're starting to be tempted to not stick this out, what's the kind of thing you're going to say? God made it too hard for me. God, I wanted to serve you. I wanted to stay faithful. But your circumstances, you stacked the deck against me. You're the all-powerful God and you didn't stop all of this. James is saying, take God off of your blame list. Instead, recognize that the reason you're being tempted is something much more personal. I want to quote somebody that um, I read a little bit when I'm getting ready. It's just somebody that uh, is not like the deepest of theologians, but puts things in very explainable ways for me. Uh, a guy named Warren Wearsby, and he says this about temptation. Uh, an, uh, temptation is an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way out of the will of God. James is feeling like he's turning a corner and saying, okay, grow up, get ready for this, trials are coming. By the way, let's talk about temptation. Because before we go any further, I just want to settle this in your heart so that you know how to move forward. And so temptation being an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way out of the will of God. And I believe that Scripture bears this out. I believe that Scripture um, really proves this point. And so I appreciate Wearsby's um, summation of that. So why would, we be, uh, why would we blame God for our temptation anyway? And I, and I would say that we don't always say it that way. Most of us are slick enough and smart enough and know how disgusting it sounds coming out of our mouth. If we say, God, you did this to me. God, you failed me. Maybe when we're totally losing our cookies and we just can't keep it together anymore, maybe those things come out. But for the most part, our blame of God is much more subtle. Because God, if you understand from Romans that he has laid out the things in our life, that he is weaving together a tapestry behind the scenes of your life, he's putting things in, in place, he's moving people into your life, that the people that you have in your life, the job you have in your life, the circumstances and everything are being orchestrated by God to grow you up, to shape you up. When you start complaining about those circumstances, you're complaining about the one who gave them to you or allowed them to happen. But again, we don't always just come out and call him by name. We don't say, God, it's your fault. 
But we say, I would be better at this, or I'd be more pleasing to God if it wasn't for fill in the blank. So when we're asking the question, why would we even need this kind of instruction? Why would we even think to, to blame God for our temptation? It's because there is some kind of intense struggle to find an excuse for losing our grip, for the failure that's about to happen. And when we start to feel that, there's this, remember we were saying before about the drama, and there's this strange comfort of like, yeah, I know it kind of kicks me around, and I'm not real proud about, pr- proud about that, but I'm used to it, I'm familiar with it, I don't quite want to abandon it all yet. And so as our grip's starting to slip, we go, hey, I got a way out. I got an excuse. When I let go, it's not my fault, and I fall into the thing that gives me a strange comfort anyway, so we're good. I've got this figured out. Now, why James is bringing this up in the midst of preparing us for persecution and the pressure coming is because when that uh, screw starts getting tightened and we start to realize, wow, this really means something. I've been saying I want to follow Christ. I've been saying I have a passion and a heart to build the church. And now all of a sudden the government's coming against us or individuals or some religious sect or in our world, some terrorists or something like that. Things are starting to come in against the church. And I'm seeing how other people don't seem to have the same struggles. Why? Because they're just going with the flow. They're just being a part of the crowd or what the Bible would call the system of the world. And I'm starting to go, wow, the grass really is greener on the other side. I'm not sure I'm ready to see this commitment through. So James is saying, if you start to go there, if you start to lose your grip on your commitment, take God off your blame list. It's not his fault. Instead, we see uh, something else going on in verse 14. He says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts. Now, I, what's going on with this idea of being carried away, picture a trap. My, my mind goes right to what saturated my brain growing up, and that's Bugs Bunny. I, I'm picturing Elmer Fudd with his box trap. You can't quite see it from this picture too well, but it's kind of peeking out in the side. And the box trap is propped up, and there's a string running out off to the side, and he's like, ha, ah, you know, and he's going to hide this from Bugs. And then he'd put sometimes a plate with a carrot on it, you know, in there. And um, so Bugs Bunny is not a great example for us here because he was always 10 steps ahead of his arch enemy and he loved playing with him. So he'd almost get himself trapped just to have things flip around on Elmer Fudd. But the point is, is that when the scripture says that each one of us is drawn away and enticed by our own lust, think about the nature of Bugs Bunny liking the carrot. We have grown to symbolize carrot rabbit, carrot rabbit. Or I would say worm fish, worm fish. This is the imagery that's going on in the scriptures is that we are drawn away by something that we naturally desire. Who's it, whose fault is it that we would like, if we're a bunny, that we would like carrots? It's our creator. Whose fault is it if we're a fish that we like worms? Our creator. The point that I'm making is this, is that we are drawn away by something that is built within us that likes the good in it. This is why Wearsby earlier said temptation is an opportunity to do something good, but in a bad way. And where we get messed up is that we start to give ourselves over to it regardless of whether or not it's the right time, it's the right um, mode of it, it's the right aspect of it, any of those things, and we go outside of God's will to have it. 
The carrot on the plate isn't the problem. It's what we do from that moment on. And so as we are, as we're contemplating these things, um, you know, it, just keep in mind, we have been given a desire for food. Why? Because God in his wisdom said, your body's going to need replenishment. And in his grace and in his mercy, he said, and, and in his wisdom as well, he said, I'm going to make that food desirable to you so that you keep eating. So that you stay strong, so that you stay healthy. Um, he has built the body to desire rest because it needs it to replenish. And so as we get tired and we go, oh man, I cannot wait to get to bed or I really need that nap. It's something we enjoy. Even if on the side we're saying, but I've got so much to do because he knows our bodies need rest. Now, why does he create in mankind such a strong desire for sex? Because he knows the population needs to uh, con- continue and go on. So put in that thing something that is enjoyable, something that is a draw to us. In his mercy, he makes it part of the connection between man and wife and build that intimacy. You see, God has had it all figured out from the beginning, and he placed all of that in the garden. It wasn't wrong that Adam and Eve desired some fruit. It was wrong because it was outside of his will. He said, I gave you the desire for the fruit, but I said you could have it in every other place except this place. God didn't fault them for thinking the fruit looked good. It was buying the lie that went with it. And this is what is meant by the word enticed. Enticed is that hook. It's okay. I, I, I've, I see that the, that the worm is kind of wiggling around. And every time the worm moves, I see something shiny underneath. Ah, I'm not going to worry about it. I want the worm. We are deceived. We are hooked at that point. No temptation is what it appears to be at first. He switches the metaphor on us a little bit here, James does, in verse 15. He says, then when lust has conceived, now we're getting into an area that we know all too well with with child uh, birth and raising and things. He says, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. I think it would be interesting if you know how when someone's expecting a child, especially for the first time, and people say to the mom or even the dad and stuff, be like, oh, wait, your world is about to change. Trust me. I mean, it is about to change. And we get kind of all excited because there's this kind of sinister, like, (laughs) you have no idea what's coming, do you? And then when the third child comes because you're going, okay, once you run out of hands, you know, your world's about to change. Or once you need the minivan, <laughs> no more sports cars and all this kind of stuff. Or when you get to seven, eight, and nine and they start to, they don't, they don't say anything to you anymore at that point. Just kind of look at you like this, like my dog looks at me sometimes, like, why would you do that? Um, so, so, I think that that's how we should say when somebody is, and I'm being tongue-in-cheek here, but someone confesses a temptation. Oh, I'm being led down this path. You're like, oh, guess what? Your world is about to change. Because you know what's going to happen? Oh, you're going to feel a few kicks, and it's going to be exciting and everything. And then when it becomes work, and it's going to lead to this, and it's going to head down this path and everything. So guess what? Your world's about to change. And that person's like, no, wait a second. I just said that this is a bad thing. I know. And it's going to get worse. And this time, you know, it's not one of these sinister, like, I hope it goes wrong for you. Instead, what it is, is do you have any idea where this is going to drag you? Where this is going to lead you? All the little fish buddies are talking to one another, don't bite the worm, don't bite the worm. Don't you know where this thing leads? 
It leads to a skillet with lemon being poured all over you. Can you see the imagery is so powerful that James is giving us? He says there's an order to this. Once uh, this, this thing has happened, it's almost like sin has a genealogy. It begins with desire, which is, again, something that God has built within us that we turn into lust. And then it moves to deceit, which is that rationalization that uh, I know this has caught a few other fish before, but I'm going to miss the hook. I know how to nibble right around that thing. Then that becomes the determination. I'm going to take action. Now that I've come up with my plan, I'm going to execute it. And then sin, eventually, when it gives birth and that birth takes shape and it starts to mature, it matures into death. Please do this for me as we talk about this passage. Do not make the mistake of thinking that this is strictly just the punishment that all of us as human beings now have because Adam first sinned, that we will all have our day in the grave. That is absolutely what's in view here. But do not think that a series of dying events will not take place as you're marching towards that coffin. When you and I bite the hook, there's all kinds of things that start going wrong. The whole thing starts breaking down. The fish starts to struggle. The fisherman's pulling on the other end. Because, wait a second, I didn't intend for this to happen. I didn't expect it. Now that I'm seeing the sun get closer as I get to the surface of the water, I can see the shape of the boat. I didn't intend for any of this. And then when we get slapped into the boat, there's a lot of flopping around and you can't breathe. You can't find life. And it's, and it's, it's suffocating you. It's burying you and everything. And then all of a sudden, I'm thrown into this dark bucket. And I don't know where this is going and stuff. And then ultimately what happens is I'm sliced open and I'm fried. And I'm about to throw up because I'm not a fisherman. <laughs> my grandfather made me do that once. And that's, that was the worst experience of my life. No, I'm just kidding. The, this is the imagery you and I have to walk into our temptation with. It's okay to understand that the reason why this thing looks good to me is because my maker created a built-in holy desire for me to think that that thing is attractive. But the problem is, is these days, since sin has entered the world, every bite is laced with a hook if it's not something that God has sent my way. And that's why he says in verse 16, do not be deceived. The greatest deception since the creation of man is to make us believe that God has made it too hard for me to be good. I wouldn't have failed if he didn't put that tree right in the center of the garden. The point is, is that God has built within us desires that we are all too quick to distort for our own purposes. The quicker that you and I can imagine what death is going to look like as we're being yanked on that line, and all the things that are going to start breaking down in our lives, our, our families are going to suffer, our work is going to suffer, our income is going to suffer, all of those things. That's what temptation does, is it drags you down a path you did not intend for it to go. Let me ask you just a simple question and we'll move on to one quick verse here. What is the thing that you want so badly even the good thing that you want so badly that you're willing to sin in order to get it. Once you've identified what that thing is, that's the thing that you now owe up to the Lord and say, God, you have got to protect me from every shiny hook that's lying underneath that worm. Understand that the reason why you want it may not be because you're some wicked, evil 
pervert or some weirdo or some whatever. It may just be because you like food because food gives you strength. It may just be because you like sleep because sleep gives you rest. It may be because you like um, sex because sex is supposed to be an intimacy that's built between man and wife. It's meant for the procreation even of the earth and stuff. Maybe it started there. But it's become a thing where you said, God's not giving me the thing I need the way I want. So I'm going to find it my own way. Expect for the fisherman to yank on and say, I got one. Now, in verse 18, James says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits." among his creatures. As much as as this might feel a little disconnected from that very heavy imagery, I think what James, again, is preparing his reader to understand is when you succeed, when you avoid temptation, when you take God off your blame list, it's not so that your life goes well only. It isn't so that you don't get caught in, in flipping around in the boat and stuck in a bucket and all that kind of stuff. It isn't for any of those things. Those things are the byproduct of us doing what God has called us to do, But go back to what we said earlier. When we realize that God is for God and he allows us to be a part of his process because he is love, then we understand that this is all about the promotion and the, and the, and the praise of his fame and his glory. And I think what James is saying here is that James is saying that he reached down to us, us first century Christians, the, the founders, if you will, of this church and movement so that generation after generation would follow and be inspired by something as simple as God's people saying, I don't need that worm. That worm wasn't intended for me. It's not coming at the right time. I'm suspicious of it. I don't know why it's just floating there in the water. I'm going to avoid it. I'm going to stay tight with the school, and I'm going to move around it. As, as the generation of the church takes that on as its, as its focus and as its goal, then the following generations are inspired by it, they're encouraged by it, and they too carry on the legacy of God's people. So he said, we're being offered up as a kind of first fruits, like a precursor to the strength of the church to come. Now, we saw this on display yesterday. We're in a celebration of life for Rebecca Kane, and we saw different generations in the same room, and the power of one woman holding tight her testimony and carrying out a legacy of faith. And she even said in her own video that she recorded, which is pretty amazing and just really, really powerful, um, she's talking to people in just her Rebecca kind of way um, about the fact that I wish I could leave you a million dollars, but instead what I'm attempting to leave you is a legacy of character. And she said, I I hope I'm doing that because she's humble about it. She goes, I hope I'm doing that, but I know that that has far more value to you than any money I could leave you. And then we had somebody uh, of, of a younger generation come forward and say, if it wasn't for that woman's influence in my life, I wouldn't have turned from the bad decisions I was making and the relationships I was settling for, and I wouldn't be married to the godly man that I'm married to now, and all these things, and saw that turn around. We saw Rebecca Kane basically, as James says, being offered as a kind of first fruits for the next generation. Somebody who lived well who died well because as the temptation to bail out and to whine and to suck your thumb, and this isn't fair, I would have been a better Christian if God had changed my circumstances, if he would have made me healthy till my, till my last breath, I could have pleased him more. She didn't sign up for any of those excuses. She took God off her blame list. And what ended up happening was the generations were inspired to follow. That's the call you and I have. Something as simple as avoiding the worm on the hook. 
now starts to get us to see, okay, I know this is for God. This promotes his legacy of character and conduct and faithfulness to his people. So I'm just signing up to do that. Even if I'm forgotten when it's all said and done, I'm willing to accept that as my role. Would you stand? Let's pray together as we close our time. Lord God, we are um, extremely weak. We know that. We're foolish. We know that you've given us things to um, nourish us, comfort us, protect us. And we take those things and we turn them into must-haves. We take those things and turn them into lusts. And those lusts wreak havoc on our lives. And so we pray, God, for supernatural strength. We pray for an intimate presence of your Holy Spirit that reminds us gently when that's enough or knocks us over the head when that's required to do anything to keep us out of that fisherman's boat. So thank you, Lord, for how faithful you are, how good you are to us. In your precious, mighty, and faithful name we pray. Amen.